Didi Perhouse is a teacher of soil and water. She facilitates eco-restoration efforts and is the author of the book Understanding Soil Health and Watershed Function. This is a little different than other podcasts where I'm interviewing. This is more of a dialogue between me and Didi, and she in fact interviews me a bit in this dialogue. So I'm Didi Pursehouse, and I'm here with Alpha Lowe, who I'm just meeting for the first time, though I have been reading some of your things, and I keep your name keeps coming up in conversations with other people keep asking me if I'm talking with you. So I said, all right, let's let's do this. Okay. <laughs> um, and but I'm I'm just getting to know you and you're just getting to know me. Um, and uh, do you want to just tell me a little bit more of your life history, where you're from, where you're living now, what you're. Uh, yeah, so uh, I studied physics. Um, Yep. And then, uh, and then I kind of, uh, um, after graduate school, I went. Uh, there was a period when I was kind of working in different pieces of permaculture properties and different places, uh, doing some eco restoration. And uh, and so I would hear stories about um, people saying that, oh, when they cut down the forests in the past, that the rains disappeared. And uh, and I was just in California, and uh, I was really worried about the wildfires. We were having lots of wildfires this past decade. In California, and um, and I was like, I wonder if there's some permaculture. There's got to be some permaculture solution. And I think I saw Zach Weiss's uh, video about you know how hydrating the land is really important to stop wildfires, and also about how the small water cycle creates rain. And so that got me thinking. Oh, water is a part of this stopping wildfires. When we've just focused mainly on fuel reduction, meaning chopping down trees um, to stop wildfires, when we haven't looked at this whole water equation. And then I read uh, Charles Eisenstein's book Climate. And he was saying water is as important, if not more important than the whole carbon uh, equation in the whole climate, um, because it's helping the whole earth system self-organize. And so um, I got more uh, more into this. It, it was like a mixture of uh, trying to understand the stuff I was hearing on the ground about land restoration affecting the water cycle. And then also from a physicist, because I'd studied complex systems, trying to understand the whole water cycle from a more complex systems perspective. Great. And so what are what are you doing with that now? So um, what well, was interesting because, uh, I mean, I was kind of, you know, uh, writing a newsletter about uh, this whole climate. It's called the Climate Water Project. So writing a lot of articles and interviewing people who are doing water restoration. And I just kept hearing more about, well, the climate scientists don't know what's going on. And so then I just started really diving into the climate science. And I just remember reading hundreds of papers and looking in the, hey, they actually know about the small water cycle, like they were saying the climate scientists don't know about. But actually even Manabi, he uh, he won the Nobel Prize for his climate uh, greenhouse effect. Um, but he, early on around the same time as developing that, was actually finding out that the soils were putting water into the air and then that was creating rain and then it was coming down and being absorbed in the soil. And so if the soil absorbed more, rain that are actually there'd be more of a small water cycle. He didn't call it a small water cycle back then. I think they ended up calling it precipitation recycling. That name evolved after a while. And then I realized the climate scientists are talking about precipitation recycling and the uh, eco-restoration is talking about small water cycle. But the, and they're not talking, as I talked to climate side, they don't haven't heard of small water cycle. And a lot of the people in the eco-restor didn't realize that there's all this whole climate scientists working on this precipitation recycling. And so um 
and then uh, I just started looking more into the research. Um, and then there's also this whole nonlinear thermodynamic way of uh, approaching the whole climate um, uh, process. And, uh, and so that's also bringing a whole another approach to um, figuring out the water cycle and its connection to the, to the land hydration, um, which is somewhat different than the climate modeling, uh, global climate models that the climate scientists are doing. So anyway, I've been diving kind of more deeply into this whole scientific aspect so that um because i feel like if we're going to build this water movement, we, have to, we have to bring in the scientists to go with the permaculturists and eco restorationists yeah. together yeah absolutely um can you say again just backtrack a little bit i was fiddling with the caption setting here so that i was getting a transcript um can you just say again there there were two aspects that you were just talking about and i'm I missed the differentiation you were also oh, uh, so there's a way of doing climate modeling, which is the which is the main way of doing climate science. You put in all the variables, so you put in the trees, you put in different soils, and then you see put in the evapotranspiration, you see how much the precipitation cycles or the small water cycle increases. And so there's a lot of this stuff being done, like you cut down the Amazon, you affect the rain elsewhere, or you yeah. affect the rain even on other continents. So there's this research that the climate scientists are doing. And then there's this other approach that a much smaller group are doing, but uh, they're approaching it with the nonlinear thermodynamic perspective. And so there's these maximum entropy production and maximum power production laws from nonlinear thermodynamics that you can apply to this field that sometimes gives even better answers than the global climate models, but they're so much simpler and you don't need to stimulate just equations. And out of the pops, how the water cycle behaves. And um, so that's a very interesting approach that I think will potentially grow to be a much bigger part of climate scientists, uh, climate science, because it's so much more elegant and gives you a much better understanding of the underlying physics and is simpler. And um, and it actually shows how trees and soils affecting the water cycle um, in a much simpler way. Are you familiar with Dan Young's work? Uh, no. Okay, that, you might look him, I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember to forward you some links. He has a book that came out that's, that is is on some of what you're, describing you know the thermodynamic issues um, um and, and he came to some of our early conferences oh, wait a second you may have it <laughs> I, just bought, I just bought his book i haven't read it yet there you go yes exactly yeah <laughs> okay perfect um <clears throat> yeah anyway so i'm i'm familiar with it through hearing his lectures at our conference um walter yena and i used to do an annual conference uh, here in Vermont. Mm -hmm. you're, you're familiar with Walter Yena or no? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. That's how I think I came across you. I was looking at his videos and then you appeared in them too. Yes. Yeah. So, so in any case, yeah. So Dan, Dan came to those and was, um, very both intrigued by, but also influential in some of our conversations that we were having there. So, oh, cool. yeah. And he's, um, a, he's an ecologist. Uh, he's a, well, what is he background? Dan? Yeah. Uh, he, I think he's an engineer, but he, I may be wrong okay. about that. He's either in science okay. or engineering, but from, yeah, but from sort of a different, a, my sense from a different place, but he has a, you know, an education that he could, that he could put this together, you know, put it together in a way. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. But, but, but I, I know that I sat down with him at one point. Um, before he gave his presentation, because he wanted to go over it, he wasn't used to doing a lot of presenting, and I and I did what I often do is like, can you slow that way down? So like, can we come up mm -hmm. with like a kind of 
common plain language for everything you're describing. And he said that was super right. useful. I find that's often my role is getting people who have this, you know, very like high level science in terms of the language is like not even, you know, day to day language. That's just like rattling right. off and, um, you know, getting that conversation to slow down so that, so that A, I can then teach it to the folks that I teach who are not scientists. Uh, mm. And also just helping them to bridge like, okay, this is, I am actually having to switch to speaking a different language here. Um, right. Because yeah. a lot of people are not used to that. Like they're not used to having to do that. Like, oh, you know, just like I'm speaking to someone for whom English isn't their first language. I, I need to use different words or I need to have a different tone or clarity or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, like your bread so, example and flour, flour example where you show that the flour and the bread absorbed the water very differently and it's kind of like soil was a great um yeah that's been sort of in some ways the foundation of my week <laughs> and what <laughs> a, simple, a simple thing that i was doing with some students when i was trying to develop curriculum around this uh every time i do it which is often you know uh at least every month or two i find new things that i'm actually able you know as i learn more pieces of the how the whole system works it actually, it's like such a great visual because it it shows so many of the dynamics um, that, you know, you can keep connecting into it as the central metaphor. It's still a metaphor, right? But, right. but we did can you go come up with that? Uh, did you come up with I that did. again? I did. Um, Peter, when I was traveling and monitoring with Peter Donovan with the Cell Carbon Coalition, mm -hmm. uh, somebody, one of the farmers we were working with said oh you know healthy soils like this and unhealthy soils like that and peter said it's more like that uh, you know healthy soil is more like bread and unhealthy soil is more like flour and i and i took that in mind but then i was trying to teach these high school students and develop curriculum and teaching lots of farmers and i was like well let's try actually like showing that and then mm. when i did it i was like oh wow there's a lot here Oh, cool! You, know, you can show wind erosion, you can show water erosion, you can show infiltration, you can show evaporation from the soil surface, you can show how the soil surface, um, uh, you know, becomes sealed. If when you know, if you like, if water goes on it and then it's out in the sun, it'll like turn into a impermeable surface. You can put little houses and trees have <laughs> them falling over. You can show you know, landslides, mm. you can show how the water is dirty and there's flooding around and, you know, that the soil has moved into the rivers. You can show uh, that, you know, the soil is dry underneath. And, and so that's drought and flooding in the same rainfall event, basically. And then yeah. in, with the bread, you should like, it's there's this amazing moment where the, you put like 10 times as much water on it and it never floods. And then all of a sudden this beautiful clean water starts coming up from below. And it's like, there it is, you know? Nice. <laughs> I actually tried enough. to do the experiment myself. I, I put water on the bread and put it outside and it took like three days to <laughs> evaporate. <laughs> so can I tell you two of my metaphors that I've come up with as I was trying to yeah. figure out? Yeah. So um, one of them was that there were some people who uh, didn't quite understand the importance of slow water. And, uh, and like slowing down water in the landscape. And they were also saying that, well, if you slow it down, wouldn't that mean that the rivers don't have enough water to go out to the ocean? And so I came up with this metaphor um, that if people go into a museum 
um, and they just stay in the room really quick, like 10 minutes and then leave, there's not that many people would be in the museum. But if you have the same rate of people going into the museum, but they stay for two hours, you're still gonna have the same rate of people leaving the museum at the same rate, but you're gonna have a lot more people in the museum. So the rivers are still gonna be running, mm. but it's just kind of like the, so anyway, so I thought that was That's a good metaphor. Lovely. That's lovely, yeah. I, I might borrow that. I'm very good at yeah, yeah, I'm very sure. good at catching people as long as I remember who said it. But that's beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, always, I'm always looking for metaphors and I've collected quite quite a lot that I've often, you know, I, I'm one of those people who thinks as I'm speaking or writing rather than thinking ahead and then putting it into words. And And yeah, it's always intriguing as I'm trying to explain to different people Mm -hmm. that's where you know that's where the metaphors will come so probably goes back to my my early days as a poet <laughs> cool nice I'm a poet too but um, cool. so let me tell you actually some other metaphors so oh, sure. um, one is as a wick um so that sometimes a humidifier you can kind of have put this wick into the water and the water the wick draws up the water and puts it into the air so mm -hmm. what uh, what people have discovered is that um uh so uh, is that there's an effect where the the trees in the dry wet season will push the water down into the groundwater and then they'll bring it up during the dry season. It's called hydraulic redistribution. Mm -hmm. And so and so and so like there's these scientists at UC Berkeley that have shown that this is much more an effect than we realize. That's how we're hydrating in the, the landscape in the dry season. And actually how we have creating rain. And Francis Dominguez, another scientist from University of Illinois, has been studying this too. Um, and putting into her models. And so uh, you can think of trees as kind of wicks during the dry season. And so they're pulling up the water from the groundwater and then that's how the small water cycle is increasing. And, and that's why the groundwater levels are super important that we don't dip them beneath the tree root level because then we can't hydrate in the dry season and then we have more wildfires too. And so groundwater depletion is a, is a big reason for wildfires, but no one's really talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's that's one of when I'm when I'm teaching the bread and flour. I also talk about, you know, if you if you have a, you know, a tree that falls over on this landscape that's like moist bread, that mm. has all the fungal communities that are needed to help decompose it, right? Mm. So so like here in Vermont, if I leave my firewood on the ground, it starts like literally it rained once. There's some wood on the ground, and the next day there's already fungal mycelium growing on the wood so mm. so but that that doesn't happen in a dry landscape that doesn't happen it just oxidizes very very slowly you can have a fence post there for hundreds of years or an old house standing for hundreds of years it doesn't get mossy or moldy or you know uh start to deteriorate at all no no rot happens right yeah so, because on the flower landscape there's no there's no room there's no habitat for those fungal communities the saprophytic mm -hmm. that would decompose wood yeah so. cool <laughs> and then i just said another metaphor in the whole gaia thing where you think of the earth as an organism you can kind of think of the the atmosphere as kind of like the membrane and just like a cell mm -hmm. creates its membrane the earth is actually creating its membrane because there's the oxygen and the carbon and the nitrogen and the water wouldn't be there if the plants and the animals weren't breathing that in or evapotranspiring it in. And so we're creating that membrane. And then in, in cells, they create a gradient, electrical gradient with proton gradients. And so that's how they control what happens in the cell and what goes in. 
And so those proton gradients then flow across the cell membrane and then they actually enable metabolism and energy. And so in a similar way, the membrane of the earth is being, the living organisms can control it. And then that, that if there's more of a temperature difference that in, enables more water to, to move up um, to the high levels to then form rain. So that temperature gradient in the membrane is actually what's driving the, the convection and the water cycle. And so by, by influencing that temperature gradient, you can actually then influence the water and how it gets redistributed um, to different places on the earth. And yeah. uh, so anyway, so there's, a, there's an interesting metaphor all around the earth as a kind of cell and, and metabolistic cell. I like that too. Yeah, I was reading that in one of your recent articles. And I, and yeah, this is fun trading metaphors. <laughs> so my membrane one that I've used, although I don't use it as much anymore, but um, when I was talking about kind of soil health and public health more, um, so I was really connecting it back to the body, I would talk about the soil sponge or, you know, living healthy soil um, as, as a mucosal membrane and like a place where um, there are the microbial communities for respiration, you know, for like exchange of gases, for digestion and mm. breakdown of nutrients and recycling of nutrients and reproduction and, uh, you know, creativity of more and more life. And uh, anyway, you can go, you can go through all of the systems of the, like a human body. Right. Uh, and, and think of that as like the membrane at the earth level, you know, at that okay. layer. Yeah, that it's like a mucosal membrane with all of those bacteria, you know, not just bacterial, but you know, all of the bacteria and yeasts and fungi, et cetera, communities in there that are doing yeah. all this. They're doing all this work, and it's like this workforce that is unseen and unrecognized, and therefore unvalued because we don't right. see that work. It's mostly hidden and underground. Very similar to the way that our that our mucosal membranes in our bodies, we're just learning. Oh my God. You can't just use antibiotics or, you know, or herbicides that have, you know, that basically function as an antibiotic like glyphosate and not affect the entire metabolism of the body, including mm -hmm. our ability to think clearly, because the, all of those processes are mediated by these mucosal membranes that are full of life, not right. our, but other, you know, other entities' life. And we're, yeah. every time we kill them off, we're interfering with the entire metabolism, with respiration, with digestion, with reproduction, with all, you know, creation of all of our neurotransmitters, et cetera. Mm. So that was kind but, of one, one yeah, of the- Yeah, that's, a good, that's a good one. And it also makes me also think of soil because it has water in it, right? It's kind of like the intracellular matrix that's kind of like- with cells with water in interstitial, you know, interstitially, there's all yeah. this water in between. So, yeah. um, and I think nutrients getting transported through that water too, through the soil. Yeah. 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 <laughs> all right. Your turn. What about this uh, delivery, delivery <laughs> system, right? It's like there's the veins on the, earth, I mean, not the atmospheric rivers, and then the rivers are kind of like the arteries, or one of the, I forget which one, which there's veins and arteries. So it's like one's pumping it out and the forests are yeah. pumping it out. And then when it gets into the soil, it's kind of like it's that water's moving to the interstitial fluids and uh, and it's another way of flowing at a slower speed than that. Yeah, the so going and and yeah, and those those channels are made by the structure, you know, the life organizing the minerals into a structure, but then also life moving through there. So mm. plant 
roots and worms and all of the little creatures underground, including things like snakes and insects and rodents, et cetera, making the larger channels. But they wouldn't be able to make those channels if everything's just moving and shifting, right? You have to have a structure, structural integrity to have right. the functional integrity. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's so, a lot of good metaphors there. <laughs> yeah. so tell me more about the uh, what you were saying about the trees pumping the water down. Is that root exudates we're talking about? When you said they pump it down before they, and then it sort of save oh, it. Yeah, so because there's too much water in the soil sometimes during the wet season. So the trees can actually pump it down lower. Um, how, how do they, what is the pump mechanism that they're? Oh, I'm not too aware of what the biomechanics okay. of that is. Okay, because I'm wondering if that, I mean, that could be, that could be simply that the tree roots are creating channels for the water to move down because they are creating soil structure lower, but it could also be that they're, you know, the exit. Like, yeah. If they take it up, you know, at the surface and then pump out root exudates, it's not exactly water, but it's basically, you know, sugar water, right? I'm curious yeah. if that, yeah, I'd be curious to know more about that. Yeah, well, it's called hydraulic redistribution. Yeah. So I was I had a conversation with Rob Lewis. You're familiar with Rob? Uh, yeah, Lewis? I read his uh, uh, newsletter. Yeah, yeah, and he wrote that brilliant kind of history, the Mian Mian, and oh, the history yeah. of the missing Mediterranean storms, which really, I mean, I I knew that from working with Walter. Walter makes reference to the fact that. Uh, you know, that we sort of lost this whole piece of the climate, mm. uh, you know, of, of climate science and that, but I hadn't heard the history unpacked quite so much as what Rob did there. Yeah, and it was really amazing um, because I interviewed Milan Milan too, and I just didn't know much about his background. So I asked Rob how he knew, and I guess he's in contact with uh, Milan Milan and Milan gave him all the back, all his background of what happened. Yeah, yeah, that was fascinating. But what I was saying, what I was sort of came to this funny point with Rob is like, there are these two generations, there are these scientists who have been, you know, known this stuff and worked on it for many, many years and have become kind of, um, uh, I don't know, it depends on which person we're talking about, but disgruntled or like, you know, jaded or like, you know, discouraged, I guess is the word that I would say about like, you know, there's all this beautiful science that just got lost and how come nobody's been listening to us and that they're actually often sort of seen as climate deniers or whatever, if they try to bring it up. Mm. And then there's this like other generation, sort of a, a, a younger generation that's like rediscovering this, um, you know, of people. So I see this sort of two communities and like we're kind of, uh, that maybe we go back to that metaphor, right? We're kind of, like like this like all that information got pumped underground and we're like saying hey it's time to bring it back up to the surface and we need to talk yeah. about this and yeah. write about it and find ways to express it or set you know I mean for me that part of that was part of that was writing my book although that didn't get so deeply into this you know water aspect well it was very much about water but not, not I hadn't hadn't explored it as fully as I would have liked to before finishing the book but um, but yep, through you know, lots of interviews and setting up conferences and you know ways to to elicit this information, make, giving it a platform again, giving it a voice again. Mm. Yeah, and 
when I kind of dug into the whole climate research, like there's a whole history about the water, you know, like the people who birthed the carbon greenhouse movement. So apart from Anabi, there was also this guy, Chani, he wrote the Chani report that came out, I think in 1979, that put the whole carbon thing to onto the whole US and partly the world stage. And so the US government then started acting on it. And uh, Chani would, you know, he pioneered the whole meteorological science. And he had also done work about how you know, when you cut, when the animals eat the in vegetation in Sahara or something, it actually affects the rain. And so, mm. um, so he was looking at how land vegetation was affecting the rain patterns. And and in Nabi, whose work he was quoting, was also doing this. And so, a lot of the pioneering scientists were also looking at this whole water cycle. And I think maybe in part because the carbon stuff was a lot more quantifiable in terms okay. of the global warming, and the water stuff was more complex and. Uh, um, and maybe that, that was more about the rain um, at that point. Um, although he also had shown that you know the surface, the surface cooling from the from the water evapotranspiration. Um, yeah, like it, all that research. Even though these are the pioneers and the central figures in the carbon movement, like their water story research has gotten lost. You know, in the in the in the in the mix of things. Yeah, and I just um, you know if people are listening to this and are kind of like with it you know, we're sort of jumped into the middle of the conversation which is fun <laughs> but I think maybe it might be good to just take a minute to say what we're talking about um, which is that uh, you know all of all of current climate policy etc and you know strategy um, and even teaching and understanding has focused on greenhouse gases and in particular on co2 um, and it's not that that isn't an aspect of why the climate is changing. It's not that we don't need to have some action there, but there is this whole other field of climate science um, focused on land use and water uh, and vegetation that has gotten kind of got, got kind of shoved aside um, when the carbon CO2 atmosphere piece came into public, came into the public view as like an action item. And, um, and what we've learned, you know, over the past few decades, is that what seemed like, oh, it would be easier to get people to act on reducing fossil fuel usage or to get governments to take action there, has not turned out to be an easy uh, leverage point. And that in fact, it may be that, that our best point of agency, our best leverage point, um, or our best, as Carol Sanford would say, nodal intervention is at the level of uh, land use. And that includes um, increasing or preserving the vegetation and forests, et cetera, that are there, um, uh, helping people see the value of having cover crops and diverse, diverse cover crops on soils that are currently left bare a lot of the year, um, increasing a lot of vegetation in urban spaces um, to reduce the urban heat island effect, but that that is not just about, not just about the heat island effect in one place, that we really need to re-green on a lar much larger scale, and that by doing that, we can both affect temperature, that, definitely regionally and perhaps globally, but also that we can restore rainfall in a way that it is 
um, more regular, more spread out across continents rather than big storms in some places and drought in others. Um, and that along with that vegetation, there is soil structure and soil function that we've been making reference to that soil sponge or the bread versus the flour that can soak in that rain, which is how the vegetation gets its <laughs> gets gets that water to, to actually grow. Um, and also reduce flooding, reduce drought, reduce um, erosion from wind and water, uh, provide habitat for diverse life underground and also above ground. So um, th that's just a few of the many benefits of working at a landscape scale uh, and that people can make a lot of change even in a very small space. You know, we're seeing that with some of these like Milwaukee mini forests and interesting regreening projects that people are doing and that that can have a very substantial effect on the temperature in someone's yard or in a neighborhood uh, and yeah so and I don't know if you know that I'm working on that project in Andhra Pradesh India the Andhra Pradesh community managed natural farming initiative oh no I don't they, know that one. okay so that so it's a state in southeastern India and they the whole state is working on shifting from uh, conventional kind of chemical agriculture to more natural, much more natural agroecological farming. Mm. And uh, they, they are working on having 365 day green diverse cover across all the farmland in the state. And they've already got hundreds of thousands of farmers engaged in this. Um, and I think it's about one eighth or one sixth of the land is now um, in natural farming of the state and the government is in support of this project. So uh, I was talking the other day to John Norman. Do you know John Norman, University of Wisconsin? He wrote the textbook on environmental biophysics. Mm. He's one of those sort of scientists who kind of gave up on trying to talk to people about this stuff. Um, and uh, he's a, he has become a close friend and and he said, wow, you know, at that scale, that's where you could start really seeing some serious changes in the regional temperature and weather, you know, once you get to like having that much of the landscape changed. And the drone footage of some of these farms is amazing. You know, you see this brown fields and then in the middle of this just brown, there's, there's this amazing diverse multi-story um, acre or two of land that's producing two or three times the amount of food and has, farmers' incomes are going up because they're not using um, fertilizers or, or GMO seeds or pesticides or anything. So it's wow. very, very hopeful. Cool. So nice. Walter went there in 2019 um, uh, to, to develop educational materials for them about wh why this matters and what, what's going on with that. Um, so that, that manual is, we're waiting, waiting for edits and cool. illustrations from the UN, but, but I, I wrote the manual and Walter did a, recorded a course for them. Okay, cool. Um, and, and, and also he, I got so sick, I had to come home early, but, because um, the air quality was unbelievably bad while we were there, but Walter went on to meet with a lot of the big national water organizations and with um, the prime minister's think tank 
Um, and soon after our visit, Modi said, oh, we want the whole, all of India to be a natural farming country. So I don't know if that had anything to do with those meetings, but <laughs> okay, great. it's very hopeful. It's a very hopeful project. Do you, so. do you know about the one, I think, is it Maharashtra or something? The one Andrew Millison was filming about? Uh, there are there are a number of really interesting things going on in India. Yeah. I'm most most familiar with the Andhra Pradesh one. I get mm -hmm. I've get glimpses of some of the other ones, but I okay, don't know yeah. a lot about that one. Okay, yeah. So I think they got all these villages to redo their water, and they had a kind of almost like a friendly competition. And then after that, after a couple of years of that restoring the water system, they now focusing on uh, organic agriculture, so shifting to growing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I know that. So, and this is like one of those classic things of, you know, there, there was, <laughs> um, Rajendra Singh was the water, the waterman of India or whatever, and it was all about, you know, digging ponds, mm. um, or you know, retaining water, slowing it and sinking it in, right. in, you know, visible ways, um, which is different than the sort of soil sponge idea where it's happening underground. You don't necessarily see that the groundwater, that there's water there. It's because mm -hmm. it's underground. So so the permaculture approach is often in ways that it's obvious that you're moving earth or et cetera. Right. Um, and in doing that, yes, you'll then have more water for more vegetation. But I think the other way that under Pradesh is approaching it is that the vegetation is creating these basically cisterns underground, you know, okay, yeah, with crazy. the soil sponge. And so depending, I think depending on where you are in the world and what you, you know, if you're somewhere that is truly desert uh, or truly desertified, you probably do need to start, start with capturing water before mm -hmm. you can get the vegetation that will build the sponge. Right. But it's in true human fashion, I feel like we tend to only pay attention to what is obvious to our vis you know in our visual field <laughs> right yeah <laughs> and that's another well, I, do think they, I think they are combining the, the pond digging with the reforesting so they they're doing both yeah um, that's great yeah yeah and that's what i'm saying in a place that's really dry you probably have to do both mm -hmm. but in other places like uh you know in the midwest or you know, the u.s or other places you don't need to build big retention ponds necessarily you just need to plant cover crops you know mm -hmm. and maybe they're maybe they're not that prolific the first year or two but um but they will create the soil structure that can hold the water so a lot of people say oh we don't we don't have enough water to grow cover crops and it's like you don't actually have enough water not to grow cover right so are you working, what, what's your what's your day? I know you're doing a lot of writing, but what's your daily? Well, like? a lot of it is actually spent time doing this research on the water. Um, so yeah. yeah, that's a lot of my time, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting when, because it feels like we're still not having that conversation between the climate scientists and the um, and the people on the ground uh, doing this. I mean, there's a couple of people, you know, people now know about like Malai Milan or Anastasia Makareva, Andre Nogre. Um, I guess uh, Walter. Yeah, he's a is he he's a scientist from a university too, right? So yeah, so he's, he's not a university scientist. Oh. He was a government scientist in Australia, so okay. he did government research work. And he was actually, when he was quite a young scientist, he was working on, um, uh, you know, rainmaking experiments. Not you know, 
like in the way that many people were about like rain seed, cloud seeding, et cetera. And so that got him very intrigued because they were going up and collecting air samples and they kept saying, oh, this, it's contaminated. There's bacteria on the slides, you know, or whatever. And then finally they realized, oh, wait a minute. These are bacteria that are in the air. Mm. And, then, and then they started trying using those bacteria in their cloud chamber experiments and realized, holy cow, these are way more effective uh, at, you know, as a hygroscopic element than pretty much anything else we've tried. So they realized this is this is part of how the whole cycle works. But yeah, all, whole... all of that research was like high security research that that you know, and he was just a young scientist, so it's not accessible. You know, it's all behind locked doors because right. it was considered, you know, it was considered a weapons. A lot of that cloud chamber work was like considered well, military yeah. research. Yeah, I think we're still uh, it's still a bit nascent because we're still it's quite I guess it's called the field is called bioprecipitation where fungi spores or bacteria or lichen BVOCs can float up in the atmosphere and create rain, which which means that it's possible that the earth is kind of somehow, I mean, life forms can adapt, they evolve, right? So if sometimes they're seeding more rain or less rain, it affects, there's a systems effect. So I, I would feel like evolution would actually evolve how we're seeding the rains around the earth. And so... That whole aspect is still, you know, very nascent right now, and we have we don't understand fully how life forms may be affecting or regulating rains in certain ways. Yeah, yeah, and they they you know the the bacteria that they were seeing was so um, prolific. It actually when you know when they changed all of the like kingdoms etc., it actually got reclassified as something else. <laughs> um, so that so you can't even look up. <laughs> It's now, and interestingly though, it's in the family of E. coli. And Walter says, well, this is interesting because they were finding that it's it it lives in the stomata of the, the leaves of trees, mm. this bacteria that they were also finding in the sky. And, uh, you know, what do animals, you know, monkeys or whoever's living up in the trees eat? There's those leaves, and that's where we get like E. coli in our own intestines, right? He's he's saying that it's not it's not it's not a coincidence that it ended up in that family. Mm. Uh, so it's like a distribution system. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, the whole atmosphere is like if you think about the cell as if the Earth is like a membrane, and that membrane is transporting nutrients, it's transporting these bacteria or whatever the, the different yeah. Organisms. And his view is that it's going up. It's that they live in the stomata of the leaves and that they rise up with the transpiration stream. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, if we think of the whole, um, the whole, um, the whole atmosphere as kind of like a transportation system, like plants are also affecting that transportation system. Like there's something called the Hadley cell that there's these large scale circulations in the feral cells. So, so the, the air rises in near the equator and then flows uh, towards the pole woods and then it comes back down and like in a cycle. And that's because mm -hmm. it's redistributing heat. Um, but, uh, but plants are also um, actually, when they evapotranspire, they actually affect this uh, whole Hadley cell. So, so there's ways that the whole, 
vegetation is affecting these large scale atmospheric circulations and affecting where rain goes and where things flow. And so um, I think there's a lot more to understand, like this whole Gaia perspective, like what there is, we look at it as a living organism. And right now, like our climate models, like they have plus or minus 1.5 Celsius, which is a lot big degree. And that's because the clouds and the aerosols are not, it's like such a delicate issue. You have a little bit more aerosols or bioaerosols and you have more clouds. And if the clouds are high, they trap heat. If they're low, they reflect heat. And so low clouds cool and high clouds heat up the earth. And, and it's also delicate. And because the climate models can't resolve, clouds are on a much smaller scale than most grid sizes of climate models. There's so much uncertainty. But, um, and I think Anastasia Makareva says this, it, that's not, that the, the, the water is actually regulating the heat. And so we can actually mm -hmm. have more high clouds and more low clouds. Or, so water can heat or cool the earth up because you have, it's like a greenhouse gas. So um, it can also heat up the earth. And so what the better way to think about it, instead of trying to get all the minute details of the climate models right, which we need to do, is to actually have some framework which actually looks at more of it as a regulation system. And then yeah. you understand the feedback loops and so that's where I think nonlinear thermodynamics and some of these other approaches to climate may be more useful um, than, than, than the global climate. I mean, well, what they can be used in conjunction with global climate models to figure out how exactly Earth is self-regulating um, right. its own heat and temperature. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I've read that I was fascinated by and that I teach is, is about the, um, you know, the ocean. In the oceans, it's also the plants are basically creating feeding bacteria that then become you know it's the dm i always get it wrong dmsp and then the dms right yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> but, that, but that they're but they're thinking that that um when they need more cloud cover when it gets too hot they create more of uh, whichever it is right, and yeah. I, but and 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 that actually creates a cloud to yeah. cool so it's so it is this feedback loop of like how um, you know, how much of these substances are these plants and bacteria producing so they can basically make a cloud above them, which my, I would think that the forests are doing exactly the same thing. Right. And in both cases, it's this plant bacterial relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And the substances that they emit. So. Yeah. So the, yeah. So the ocean organisms could be affecting the, the climate. And then, yeah. So then there's all sorts of interesting atmospheric ocean couplings, like the, the way the wind moves drives ocean currents and, and you know, vice versa, like ocean movement drives air current. And so there's this whole feedback loop. And if you think about if plants can affect the Hadley cell and large scale atmospheric circulations, and those are large scale atmospheric circulations affecting the ocean currents and the ocean currents affecting heat, there's this whole complex systems thing. If you think of it as a cell, like the earth as a cell where these fluids are kind of moving and I think we still haven't yet to wrap around it scientifically how this could all be forming this kind of global self-organizing system of the earth kind of regulating itself. Right, because it isn't, it, you know, even it's, it's, it's tempting even just to break it down again into parts like, oh, well, this is this organ or this is that organ, right? It's the ocean organ or it's the land organ. And yet they're, they're totally influencing each other for sure. Right, yeah. And, and like I said, it's not just like, oh, the oceans are creating the climate. They're also creating their very, what I was, the example I was giving 
they're also the, the plants and bacteria that are living in the oceans are creating their microclimate that they need. Right. But that, but of course, that's also being impacted. Why is it too hot in that place? Maybe because somebody cut down the forest over here, right? Right. And yeah. Somebody like you know planted one over there, and now we have a cool low pressure zone here, and it's pulling the air in different ways, and mm. so so there's regulation going on at different scales and times all at the exact same time right yeah and also, and also sequentially right so it's it's like you know did my liver you know you know put out more enzymes because i ate this thing or did i eat this thing because yesterday i needed you know my blood sugar regulated or you know like it's right it's yeah not, so this causality yeah. not one question right it's it's we have to be able to image the whole living system working as all these multiple processes and these multiple workforces, I would say, is how I often talk about it, uh, that are that are doing these processes and they're all mutually influencing. It's not linear, it's not mechanical. We can't draw, you know, as much as I respect Danella Meadows, it's not pipes or gears or, you know, full, there's no there's no spigot or <laughs> right. Uh, that it's important that if we're using metaphors to try to at the least use like living metaphors. So I appreciate, you know, thinking about, okay, it's more like a cell, right? That it, than it is like a, a machine. <laughs> so, yeah. So we also need to practice not even using metaphors and being like, no, this is like, let's talk about the reality of it. Like, let's go out and pour water on the soil, healthy soil and unhealthy soil, not just on bread and flour, right? Right. Yeah. I actually feel it. Yeah. Well, you know, the whole natural selection seems to, they put the focus too much on only the organism. So like, so just say, why would a tree evapotranspire more? Well, okay. So from a natural selection point of view, it might be because it can cool its own surroundings. And so then it has benefits for itself. But the fact that if just say evapotranspires, but then the rain, you know, because of the wind that blows and then creates rain elsewhere, from a natural perception perspective, there's nothing, there's no reason to create rain down there. But if you actually go out to a more complex systems viewpoint or nonlinear thermodynamics, there are rules of actually how the whole system unfolds and emerges order. And so there are reasons why at the global, when when things evolve that, um, because, because before plants are plants, they're still about, uh, obeying the laws of, of, of physics and other things of like, you know, of, of like deeper, of a deeper laws and these laws are more like supersede natural selection in some way and so they're still in play like the whole complex systems non-linear thermodynamics and so that will come into play with saying hey there might be a reason why you want to create rain elsewhere because the whole whole earth system then moves into this low entropy state or something yeah, and if we think about, I mean, human behavior, yes, many of our behaviors are, you know, I'm eating right now because I'm hungry, but I might also be thinking, well, I'm eating now because I know I have to drive there and do, you know, volunteer for this thing that's happening later tonight. And if I don't eat now, I'm going to be hungry later. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're capable of thinking about larger systems, I think less and less so in some ways and maybe more and more so in other ways, <laughs> but um but I, I, I've always really bristled at this thing of like humans are the only ones who are, we're, we're special because we're conscious or we're special because we have language or we're special because et cetera. And 
to me that we have we have no idea what the language is of some other species, right? Yeah, they start to find out that like whales... pointing at a bicycle and saying, "Well, it doesn't have a motor, so it can't go." You know, right. <laughs> like we just don't. Where it's a failure of imagination. <laughs> yeah, I think we're only now starting to decipher some of these languages, like of whales and how they're communicating and how that could be affecting the whole atmosphere and the ocean certain behaviors and then like birds are communicating like and then mycelia too there's some studies that show like the 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 patterns the chemical patterns of the um of the electrical signals in mycelia have certain interesting patterns that it's possibly indicative of language and so if the mycelia are somehow coordinating how which trees get which nutrients and the trees are evapotranspiring create rain like there's all sorts of ways that we have yet to understand how this whole thing is functioning um, that's possible. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's still a lot of pieces of the puzzle to be figured out. Yeah, and I don't think, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think we can or even should attempt to try to understand every single piece of it. I think we need to trust that it's always going to be so yeah. much more going on than we can possibly see, but, but I think it's a very, very important um, capability to grow to actually try to image the whole at work so when I'm teaching I often have people draw or I will just draw very you know just just like we're, we're talking about movement and flow and process we're not talking about things you know how many oh we're you know there's not enough of this species or whatever it's like what it, what does that species do what is its work what's its role what process does it participate in what's influencing it so to be able to think at, at multiple processes all happening at once is such a different kind of right. mind, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and I guess there's a sense, like, you can kind of sense, you know, if you go to the forest, like, there's just this magical things that are happening. Like, it's like, and just kind of trust that that's happening without necessarily having to go into the science of understanding it all just kind of almost like when you really listen in the forest you can almost sense something's going on mm. and when did permaculture come in for you because i was really into design thinking um and mm. uh and permaculture is very design thinking and that's how i got into the whole permaculture yeah 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 i was like i remember here reading waste equals food um as one of the concepts in permaculture mm -hmm. and that blew my mind oh nature's a cycle you know like the poop is actually food for something else like it's food for the soil and for the plants and the, the output of a plant the oxygen is actually our input and our, yeah. our output the carbon dioxide is input for them so it's like it's like it's like waste is like a very perspective dependent and it's this whole cycle and uh, yeah that kind of it, it's yeah it's pretty mind-blowing <laughs> mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And our whole system, like I think the way we have it is we have waste products of the city and, and yeah, it's not integrated into the cycle and that's part of the issue right now. Mm -hmm. um, and really permaculture is about creating those cycles again to create those closed loops. Um, and uh, yeah, and as you close those loops, you actually have more and more local loops too. So the whole globalization process has kind of destroyed local loops. And that includes the local loops of uh, water. So there's local water cycles. So William William Ripple he he wrote about 
disputed structures in waters. And he was saying that as the earth evolves, you have these more global atmospheric distribution patterns for the water. So it comes onto the land and then it just rushes off if there's no vegetation. But as you develop more and more vegetation, evolve, evolve, it absorbs into the soil and then it evapotranspires and creates local loops called the small water cycle instead of the large water cycle. And so there's more and more small water cycles. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's in part also why um, the whole carbon in the water equation, like the carbon is a little bit about when you put out carbon emissions, it kind of affects the whole global thing. And so your, your effect is spread out over the whole globe. Whereas your yeah. water, if you change it, you couldn't be affecting your local water cycle through the small water cycle and also through the underground water cycles. And so your effect is actually, you could see it a lot more. And so, so in some ways, a water movement could be easier to get off than a carbon movement, um, carbon emissions yeah. movement. And so I think if we put a lot more attention on this, um, and I, yeah, and I, I, and that makes me think of too, I think you and Walter Jenny, Jenny uh, started the, re, uh, was it Rehydrate California? <laughs> like, we did, it never really, I mean, we, yeah, we did this speaking tour in California in uh -huh. I don't know, 2017 maybe. And, uh -huh. uh, and, we, and we had a, a lot of great workshops, but neither of us is based there. So we were kind of like, okay, we're, We'll bring together, you know, we'll create a space for people to find each other, but we right. were kind of hoping it would get picked up, but it's, it's intriguing, and, you know, um, Mikhail Kravchuk kind of did some sort of a similar thing, you know, where it was sort of like a, went through California and then people, there were some, some initiative, water, water initiative there, but I feel like California is a funny place in that, um, you know, they they latched on so strongly to the soil carbon piece and to compost. Um, both of which, I mean, I, I relate to that because soil carbon was kind of my bridge in, you know. Um, but having worked with and been on the board of and the president for a while of the Soil Carbon Coalition, you know, we 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 kind of have come to the conclusion we've kept our name, but um that Soil carbon is a very, very variable. It's not a good metric, and it's mm. and now that it's become monetized, it's it's just the wild west of metrics mm. and instruments and um and so. But California really hung their, you know, their hat on that or put their money on that as being like the the way to regenerate and and on you know spreading compost as being like a way to get at that mm. so it it was actually a strangely hard place to to try to open up the water dialogue or the mm. soil sponge dialogue or the well there's you know, a lot of that going on i mean i i was in california there are a lot of people working on it and so i think you, you probably have some impact somewhere that's kind of rippled out yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah in terms of metrics like i think in the water like a key metric is just how much water you have on a continent, like, like how much I think is really important because, I mean, it's almost intuitive. You have more water than you have less wildfires and, you know, you have more plant growth. And so the fact that we're draining all our water out with roads, because roads are fast water and mm -hmm. sewage pipes just funnel them off and channelize rivers, like, like it affects the, so I think that should be a metric of just how much continental water we have. Um, 
which kind of includes the groundwater. You can't be depleting groundwater to to create the ground uh, to create more water on the ground uh, the surface. Um, yeah. And then I think the other metric is kind of precipitation recycling or how much small water cycle you have. Like, because as the health system gets healthier, you should have more precipitation recycling in that area. So I think perhaps those two metrics can be what we use to kind of. So those would be, I mean, those would both be like satellite layer or, you know, those are large metrics, right? Yeah. I mean, that's oh, so. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, small water cycle could be pretty, uh, I mean, it's still somewhat large, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just um let's see, if you go to landandleadership.org and you go to let me just pull it up here, um I I came up with a um a set of metrics that I think are really useful. Um, let's see, under me materials fact sheets and then um. Uh, how do we measure improvements? I'll just pull this up and share it with you. Um, but these are like all different ways, including some things that are more like satellite based uh, of, of knowing that like what we're doing is actually in improving the soil sponge structure or function. Mm um and they're all getting at the same thing but from different vantage points you know so it's like lots and lots of different views in um uh but yeah it can be it can be so many different kind of layers and so what i like about this is like if any citizen group or farmer or policymaker or you know county or whatever wanted to know whether what they were doing was effective they could pick three or four of these to measure and some of them are going to be much more, um, you know, much more precise. And some of them are going to be, you know, like looking Maybe at like- Maybe just read some of these off for the listeners here, like- Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So bulk density is like, you know, is like how dense is the soil? Um, compaction is sort of another, another way of measuring that same thing. Um, but, and then there, I've also listed off like, what are the observable ways, you know, like it's easier to stick a shovel into or it's easier to pull carrots out, right, if the soil is more fluffy. Um, but then there are also, are the mineral particles stuck together into a matrix, like the, that's what we call aggregation. So is it more crumbly, like cake or bread or less like flour or clay or sand? Um, you can see those little clumps sticking to roots, um, but then there are tests we can do like putting that soil into water and does the water stay clear? That's called the lake test or an aggregate stability test. Um, how much water can the soil hold, right? So then we're measuring like the space in between things <laughs> rather, than, um, rather than how much density of stuff is there. Or um, Walter and I sometimes call that like sacred space or the cathedrals underground. Um, erosion, right? Erosion from wind and water will decrease if you have more aggregate stability, you have more structure underground. It's more like bread rather than flour. Um, the really important one, this is where we started in our conversation, right? Is about that water that's being, that's moving down and then it's filling up the rivers and ponds and streams, et cetera, from the sides and from below rather than running off and so instead of having like in Vermont, you know, when it rains, we have this huge change in the height of the 
streams and rivers that can be really destructive. Um, if, if the ground is absorbing all the water, uh, then it'll still get to the rivers, like you said, that museum metaphor. <laughs> um, but uh, so the rivers will keep flowing, but they'll flow at a much more regulated rate in that sense. It's not everybody rushing to the exit at the same time. <laughs> uh, so, um, likewise, we would see less visible runoff from the field. Um, and that also would, one of the effects of that is it will have a lot less algal blooms and tox, toxic algae um, in, in lakes and coastal areas, et cetera. Really key one is just that the infiltration rate increases. So we get water flows into the soil much more quickly um, and it doesn't sit on the, or pool on the surface. Um, and there are some precise ways and, and some very general ways of measuring that. And even just like pouring a cup of water on the ground, you can see if you pour it on cement, it doesn't go in, right? <laughs> if you pour it on uh, moss or something like that, it's gonna go in more like a deep mossy thing or a really spongy soil, it'll go in quickly. Um, puddling and ponding and pooling and flooding is gonna decrease. So driving by fields, you might, after a rain, some of them you might see water sitting on the surface because um, the soil isn't soaking it in and others it might have soaked in really quickly. Um, soil moisture is more regulated. Uh, groundwater levels will increase over time. Um, rootability, like the roots can actually go down deeper and spread out more. Um, root to shoot ratio will increase, so more a plant will have an easier time making deeper roots, which then can get more nutrients and water for the plant. So for, like what we were saying about forest fires um, can be really, we can have a real impact by having more water available to trees. Um, and of course, when, when there's more water available, there is also more nutrients available when they have a deeper, more branching roots and having more nutrients available. If you follow John Kemp's work means that they're going to be a lot less prone to diseases and infestations from bugs that are eating them more than they should be. Bugs are supposed to eat trees, but not <laughs> destroy them. <laughs> um, Peter Donovan talks about production per inch of rainfall, you know, especially when we're looking at like grazing systems that mm. if the rain is productive, like in, and the soil can soak it in, you can grow a lot more grass or a lot more beef or a lot more dairy, et cetera, from each inch of rainfall. Um, like I was just saying, plant health and resilience and structural integrity will increase. Even things like the strength of cotton or wool that's grown in soil that has um, that structure to it um, will be better because the roots can go and they have all these microbial symbionts that can go and get the nutrients. Um, so there'll be less crop damage during a storm, for example, but also like, yeah, your sweater will last longer. <laughs> um, the length of green season in places like California or Australia, places where you have more seasonal rainfall or a more Mediterranean climate, um, those grasses will stay green longer. Um, and yeah, that's something that now we have ways of measuring by satellite, but it's also something you can just see, look at your field versus your neighbor's field or your meadow versus your neighbor's meadow. Um, 
and then air temperatures. Uh, this is, of course, air moves, so it's not quite as direct, but air temperature um, during a heat wave, if you're in an area that has more vegetation, that has more soil structure and function that's providing water to that vegetation, there should be a cooler air temperature because of the increased in transpiration. So there's more water moving through the plants. And then also really intriguingly that the soil temperature is gonna be a lot more regulated because that soil structure is like an insulation layer. So it's actually um, cooler in warm weather and it will also freeze more slowly in cold weather. And both of those are really beneficial both for the plants and for the life underground, so. Yeah. Cool. That's a great uh, set of metrics. Yeah, about temperature, air temperature, soil uh, quality, um, water flows. Um, yeah. So I, if people are listening, uh, landandleadership.org, um, I think you can find this list of metrics. Um, yeah. And it would be at the um, under resources. I'm, I can't now see it over here because I've got, yeah, under materials and then the um, seed media project fact sheets. So okay. find it's a little bit of a, little bit of a long thread there but <laughs> yeah so if you're doing a local project it's very useful um yeah so have some ideas of what you can measure and you know a lot of people are trying to come up with what are the measurements of soil health or how do we measure soil carbon and i i like thinking about like structure and function are things that we we those are much easier to 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 see in our mind's eye of like oh no this is just like it's the structure, like I can tell you whether this is a piece of popcorn or unpopped, you know, like it's popped or unpopped popcorn, it's fluffier, right? You can see it with soil, is it fluffier? Like, can I stick a shovel into it? Is it moister? Is it cooler? I can stick a thermometer in. So the structure and function, whereas when we talk about soil health, well, how do you, first you have to ask, how do you define health, right? Yeah. Then, then you're just like, then it's a whole philosophical conversation. Right. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess you're the healer. So originally healer. So when you're talking about the water rushing out, I'd like how you added to my metaphor with the museum, like the rushing to the exit, which makes me also think that, you know, water comes in rushes in the wet season. So it's almost like the museum has certain times when there's a rush of people in mm -hmm. but staying longer then when they leave. It's kind of more a gradual mm -hmm. flow. Of but if they all staying only 10 minutes, then as then the rushes of people will actually lead to rushes of people out. And so um so yes yeah, so, yeah here's, so here's another here's another metaphor we could add to that so if people were being transported by bus versus on foot to the museum mm -hmm. right then it's like that you have a big rainfall the bus comes it deposits everybody they yeah, all go yeah. through the museum and they all leave at the same time right? right but if people are going on foot which is like um instead of the water you know going through aqueducts or you know mm -hmm. ditches or whatever if people are going on foot, it's like the water is coming, some of it's coming from, you know, 10 feet away, some of it's coming from 12 feet away from, some of it's coming from 100 feet away, some of it's coming from, you know, a mile away, right? And it's slowly moving its way downhill yeah, um, into those structures, you know, the, the rivers or the stream or whatever, or the mm -hmm. ocean. And so it's like people coming on foot to the museum. And so they're going to enter kind of gradually, but consistently. And then they're going to leave kind of gradually and consistently. And of course, different people have different interests, right? Some of that water is going to swirl around a rock for a long time and check it out. You know? yeah. Or be drunk by a fish and peed out a mile downstream. Right? You know? 
And some people are going to like be like, hey, I'm not really into this exhibit. I'm just going to keep moving, right? So, 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 so that's, I think that's really key. And that's one of the things I was getting at about um, the soil sponge concept being very different than like the, um, like digging ponds that if, if you think about the whole landscape being um, a place that can collect water, it's not only collecting it underground, but also every blade of grass, every, you know, every piece of vegetation that is standing up is acting like a micro dam. It's mm -hmm. creating turbulence. It's spinning that water to keep it from all collecting, you know, because of cohesion, right? It's like, it's all going to gather force. It's going to be this massive destructive force that that's knocking things over when it's moving across land without any vegetation. So right. by having both the structure underground that can capture it and the vegetation that can slow down every molecule as it's moving by, by spinning it, not allowing it to gather that force, uh, we can really, really reduce the damaging effect of rainfall and have it be much more of a creative, creative effect. So Yeah, yeah, the, the soil is key in that whole thing. And to add to that museum metaphor, like you can think <laughs> you of having like, I like yeah. this. You can actually think that there's multiple basement levels, right? Because actually there's a lot more water in our groundwater than there is in the surface. And it's and it plays a much more key aspect because that kind of is the buffer for when when we need more water, we can bring it up and we need le less, we can push it down. And uh, but it's kind of hidden and we don't not aware of it. But like if you're a museum, you can imagine there's multiple stories in the basement. Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. actually more people moving around and looking at things in the basement level than the than the ground level. And mm -hmm. they kind of gradually come up and uh, and then and so they're kind of supplying people, you know, for the ground level for the ground level. But if you're actually depleting, so there's no one left in the basement, then you're mm -hmm. not gonna have people coming up gradually and actually filtering out on the ground level. Let me see. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I see I see an article, maybe a co-written article coming up. <laughs> <Or a children's laughs> museum in the water. <laughs> the water museum. <laughs> So can you say a little bit more about this land and leadership thing you're doing? Yeah, I mean, that's just a it's a catchment title for for a variety of work that I'm doing. So I, I, I do a lot of online teaching and then I do a lot of um, or I was doing a lot of in-person workshops and speaking and that COVID slowed that down, but it's starting to pick up again. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it's also the Seed Media Project. There was an, uh, sort of a small team of us that were trying to put together materials uh, that help to clarify and explain um, similar to your, you know, your uh, substack, et cetera, you know, th things that help to unpack the science that is mostly hidden in these very academic or behind, you know, paywall, whatever. Mm. Um, so, so that journalists or the public or people who are interested in it have a place to, to go. And that um, the, the manual that I've been writing for the UN for that project in India, but it's, I mean, it will be used in other places, but it was spurred by that project in India. Um, a lot of my energy has gone into writing it, writing up those explanations, those sort of uh, user-friendly explanations for that manual, but I'm, um, but they're also going into this seed media project as a, as a way of like idea of like seeds, 
seeds that people can then take and create other um, other media from. So, so okay. like a, a resource a resource space. Um, and I do some I do some advising, you know, um, kind of that that kind of work um, for projects or or other writers, et cetera, reading people's things and hoping to connect the dots. Um, uh, my son is now working with me, which is great. Um, and so, and yeah, I'm, I'm hoping over the next few years to have more of a team approach there. Um, it's been uh, relatively, uh, relatively a one woman show for a while, but I've had some other folks teach teach things through the platform. So there's also like a platform on Teachable that's linked to from that site where there are um, some, some current and some past courses there. Okay, cool. So, but I'm hoping to really expand the scope of the classes. Oh, the other, well, the other main, main, and you know, not to forget probably our most regular activity is that we have a weekly group of people um, that meets every week. Uh, it's not always the same people, though there there's a core group that seems to come often or, or most of the time. Um, and they're from various parts of the world. They are all people who have taken that sort of baseline course around the soil sponge with me and who want to use living systems frameworks to think through how how we apply this to other things, how you know, what's relevant about it in our lives. Um, it's, we, we can get pretty wide reaching, you know, connecting everything to everything else, um, mm. but we always come back to using um, living systems frameworks as, a, as the foundation for our conversation. So I just design questions and host the discussion, but I'm very much a par participant too. So that's kind of like my, my home team um, where I do a lot of thinking with other people. Okay, cool, great yeah cool well this has been a pretty cool conversation yeah i know <laughs> uh, i think we should try and do another one at some point oh, go ahead i'll just say just for the people listening i just want to give your uh your your website again was it land and leadership dot org right that's right yeah learn more about Didi per houses thing and then just for my um for mine it's a climate water project dot substack dot com um, you can yeah. also see it on Instagram as Climate Water Project. Yeah, and there's a lot of good stuff in there too. So 